This is a new era brought to you by Hennessy. Hello and welcome. I'm Hannah O'Connell and you're listening to A New Era, a podcast brought to you by Hennessy. For decades, Hennessy has been synonymous with hip-hop culture, from its affiliation with heavyweight brand ambassadors like Nas, Erica Badu and recently ASAP Ferg, to being name-checked in countless tracks from Tupac to Drake. But now with the hip-hop scene in Ireland stronger than ever and growing, we think it's time to bring it home and see what's going on in the changing musical landscape of Ireland's new era. This week we are chatting to DJ Sally Cinnamon, who Hi. is fresh off the Hennessy Sound Lounge stage at Body and Soul. Fresh, exactly. Huh? Yeah. I say fresh, exactly. <laughs> at um, Body and Soul 2019, which just happened this weekend, where she was chatting to a host of acts, including Saint Sister and Mr. Saturday Night. More to come from them on this week and next week's episode. But for now, a chat with Sally herself. How did you get on? Yeah, really good. Um, very productive. It was really lovely. The chat flowed really well and it was just a lovely mixture of people coming in and out and the, the guests themselves were total legends. So it was great. I really loved it. So for people who weren't at the festival and who are listening at home, what was the Hennessy Sound Lounge and what exactly were you doing down there and who were you chatting with? Um, Sound Lounge is a project between Hen's Teeth and Hennessy, which was about celebrating craft. So it was basically the, the craft of Toby Hatchett's beautiful hand made bespoke sound systems and the craft of record collections like that's that's the main thing they take decades to to collect and form and I was really interested in talking to artists about their record collections and the music that kind of paved their careers and soundtracked their lives so we had a lovely mixture of of artists involved and it's just a really lovely way of finding out about people's lives and the music that inspires them or the music that they make. So that was amazing. That got a really lovely insight into the way in which people collect and covet music, you know? So you were down there all weekend on stage interviewing different artists, talking to them, but we want to talk to you now about your career and where you have come up. So let's go back to the start. When did your love of music begin and do you have a really early music memory? Our house was full of music. It was great. I'm the second youngest of five siblings, so... Busy house. Busy house and very varying tastes. We had a record player in our kitchen that we had, like, maybe 20 records that the family shared. So they were Paul Simon's Graceland and uh, George Michael's Listen About Prejudice. Those are the trigger albums. When I hear them, I'm straight back in that kitchen, um, Bob Marley and the Wailers. And then my sisters had their own records, so Tara was really into Prince and... um, uh, Luther Vandross and uh, Tracy was really into the Smiths and the Clash. So I got a lovely mixture of that stuff and that's how I got really into that. My brother was really into hip-hop. That was my first sort of exposure to hip-hop, even though um, him and my dad fought constantly about how much of it I was allowed to listen to. Yeah. Um, this public enemy was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> She's nine. Yeah. But... Um, so I always had access to incredible music and I'd never really appreciated that until I got older and met other DJs who just didn't have that and had to go and find it themselves. Absolutely. That's a pretty cool musical yeah. education you were given by your family. Like, And also then I had a record collection. So when I started DJing, um, I was 21. I just moved into town and my friend Tom was running an Orton Soul Club down on the Keys and... Uh, he just said, why don't, you know, why don't you do it? And I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to. Like, I was far too nervous. And then he just kind of pushed me to do it. And then he just 
put my name on the poster and called me Miss Cinnamon and he's like, you're doing it. Um, and it really, that was a, quite a pivotal moment, I think. And I kind of think about contacting him sometimes to go, do you know that that's how That you are the reason I'm yeah, here. Yeah, because I, we lost touch and um, I've been thinking about it a lot lately and sort of obstacles that you, like definitely obstacles you put in front of yourself to, you're afraid of failing or looking silly or whatever. That was definitely something that I um, think about a lot and especially lately that... Um, that was the nudge that, was that the I needed. needed. The first time I actually used a set of decks was the first time that I ever DJed in the club, and so that's a baptism of fire. Yeah, and also I've ne- I've still never owned two turntables uh, or two CDJs or a mixer. I've been DJing for nearly twenty years, like seventeen years. So all of the I learned to DJ in my bar gigs. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. So that's where you practiced. Did you always want to be a DJ deep down and need that push? Or was it something that you hadn't even considered at that point? Obviously, your it, it friends never are. occurred to me, actually, really, that I could do it. Um, I actually wanted to be an actress and I went to theatre school. And I had a kind of a weird experience there with a sort of a mentory coach. And I guess it was, I suppose, bullying of some sort. Um, and it knocked the wind out of me. I didn't realise until I left that uh, I just completely lost my confidence. And I went to do an audition and I came out of the audition and I just thought I'm never letting myself feel that ridiculous and silly again. And then it was kind of not long after that, you know, I was starting to go clubbing and, and go to clubs and still never occurred to me that I could do it, but, but, but would love to have. Mm. And then... The response I got when I started doing it and then how it sort of became, it just sort of lined up quite nicely for me. Yeah, it was a natural progression. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, I used to get a bit of sick at the time because to my peers who were all boys, it, it just seemed like it came a little too easy for me and they considered it, you know, because it was novel that I was a girl. So was it seen as tokenistic essentially yeah. that you were this female yeah. DJ on the bill? Yeah and I'd turn up and I'd wear a nice dress and you know and but like also that was definitely advantageous mm. and um, true. <laughs> I do wear nice dresses. I like nice dresses. <laughs> no but also you know I it was also a little bit of a push for me to um, make sure that I was good enough on merit so that I wasn't doing gimmicky yeah, stuff. so that when you get those comments, you can actually stand up and say, well, I yeah. can DJ as well as anyone else. And I have yeah, a right to be... You know, and it's as much about my lack of um, confidence and my response to that as it was. I mean, there was by no means I wasn't being harassed by anybody or... But, you know, you... you it's little comments here and there, definitely. Little comments here and there absorb... Um, your psyche absorbs that more and your imposter syndrome kicks in with those comments more so than the really nice ones I think we tend to dwell on negative stuff instead of really positive stuff we're pushing ourselves and starting out as a full-time career being a DJ was that a conversation that you had to have with your parents or were they just very open because they sound like music lovers so I'm going to no no not at all um no sure I was 21 when I started DJing and I was living in town um my parents are great they're always been really really encouraging yeah they're amazing they're I've got quite young parents they're real silly hearts and um, they're just deadly. They're open. They sound pretty warm. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, yeah, the more, the older I'm getting, the more I realise how beneficial it is. And just, yeah, like I was saying earlier about other people's experiences and their access to music. 
it can really change and, and pave your um, path really differently. I remember when I met Deneen first, I'm talking about Donald Deneen, um, mm. when I met him first, he was really fascinated by just the access to music and he was telling me that he used to cycle to Killarney on his bike, um, which was about 14 miles from where he lived, I think. Um, he would cycle there because there was a woman that had a like a kind of a DIY shop and she used to get the odd tape in and he would cycle and see what she had and then he would listen to it in his pair in his dad's car. It was a very different time. Very, you know, and he would just he would have any he would get a hold of anything that he could. Whereas I, I found that just as fascinating. We were the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, you had it in your kitchen. Yeah, do you know? And then when we became friends and then when we started DJing together, um we we loved the same things, but our our journey to that point were completely, were completely different. like actual opposite ends of the spectrum, you know. And like you brought up confidence issues and stuff there. Did that ever come into play when you had to stand up in a club and DJ in front of people? Absolutely. Um, and how did you overcome something like that? I was thinking about that recently because there was definitely a turning point where I just didn't care or feel self um, conscious. It took. Probably 10 years, if I'm honest, you know. Wow. Um, but I think uh, the thing was, um, yes, obviously, I, I used to do my very best to try and get out of gigs as well, you know. Or, really? Well, not, but I'd, you know, I'd I'd have a gig and then I wouldn't feel great and I'd try and get out of it. Or, you know, you're trying to... Um, one thing I learned, I realised that, that I did to overcome it without very, being very conscious about it was... Um, I figured out that if I was being watched and I felt always that when I was DJing that and especially because I was a girl that people would stand a bit closer and watch you just to like to observe you to see if you're making mistakes or to and critically observe you like not, not lovingly do you know what I mean mm. and then you know you might make a mistake and you go shit whatever and you'd be kind of cross it yourself I just stopped doing that I stopped I, I I figured out that if you could dance while you're DJing so look when like you're you feel really fun. nervous if you could actually dance it does two things it, it projects that you're feeling really confident but also it actually moves that negative energy around mm. your body so you just naturally do it's kind of like you trick yourself into you trick them into thinking that you've got this in the bag and you trick yourself and it works, and um, that would be something I would recommend people try. It sounds insane, but... Um, it's not. It's a really good top tip, because there's nothing yeah. worse, and especially um, as a female DJ, maybe 15 years ago, when there probably wasn't that many in Ireland. Yeah, there was three of us. There was Dandelion and Mo. Mo Kelly. Um, they were the only oh, two yeah. girls. Oh, even Nikana. She was... She was. A, I didn't really know them. I knew Dandelion. Uh, we, we had some of the very similar friends. And Mo was always lovely and really encouraging. Um, and they all played vinyl as well. They were only vinyl DJs, yeah. And what was your perception of a DJ growing up? Or did you have one? I guess it was obviously very male. And I was lucky to meet um, Martin McCann. when I, I, I knew Martin. Um, he was a friend of my sister's. And I knew Billy Scurry. They were friends. And my sisters worked in size, which was a really epic um, nightclub in Dublin. And they would bring home tapes. Billy used to record his sets they and set, pass yeah. them out. So I always had, we had those tapes in the house. And that was, that were, that were really my first introduction to DJ sets instead of bands. And uh, 
I remember thinking that it seemed incredibly difficult thing to do. You know, like mm. I couldn't really figure out how they did it. Mm. But it did also seem like mad crack. It's it felt overwhelming um, thinking about it. Like, God, it must take so long to get all those records. And how do you, where do you know, where do you go to find that stuff? And I think that the notion of DJing seems a little too out of people's grasps and maybe doesn't always feel like an achievable thing. But now I think it's gotten way easier. Yeah. With MP3s and everything. Um, and just technically it's easier mm. for people to learn. And I think it's not as intimidating. Um, I definitely found it intimidating when I was younger. I found record shops really intimidating. Especially if you don't have the equipment in your house. So exactly. you were showing up with records. Yeah, you don't actually have to have turntables, CDJs anymore. You know? Yeah. It couldn't be easier. Yeah, you can do it on a laptop. Um, you play a range of genres. Was that a choice that you made or did it come from your diverse musical background? I think definitely, yeah. Um, I, never, I never fully trust or understand when DJs are just like... A house DJ or a drum and bass DJ. only or techno only. Or really? I get it. I get, I get why you would pick a format to DJ in because it's easier. But I can't get why somebody would only be into one type of music. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, I just, I'm into too many different types of music that I, I don't know, I just wouldn't limit myself that way ever. So making those types and genres work uh, was something I was happy to try and figure out because I couldn't leave any of it behind. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And of course, we live in a digital era now where there's people coming up that are DJs that never, ever put a CD into a CDJ, let alone a vinyl. Mm. You obviously started out with vinyl. Have you progressed towards digital? Is that something you'd ever consider or do you want to keep it, um, keep it old school? It's, I have the advantage of learning how to, to play and mix on vinyl and then going to CDJs and then going to MP3s. You can't go back. No, I you... don't think your brain could handle it. Uh, I've been approached by a few people to show them how to um, mix, but I mix or play or play records, and I, I just feel like it's like I've had to advise two of them. One was a girl. I just said to her, "Why are you making your life so complicated? Like, think about why you want to do this. Is it just is it just a cool thing? Like, do you have a record collection? Use the tools you have." And then, you know, like ideally, I would like all of my favorite music on vinyl. Mm -hmm. um, but I stopped playing vinyl because I was, I couldn't carry. It's the, expensive and it's, it's really expensive. Um, I used to play tripod. That was kind of like my first big, decent residency. And uh, I did that for two years and I would carry two bags of records on the BMX and, uh, and then get them up the stairs and hope a bounce would help me some days. And uh I just, I just got a pain in my arse with it and mm. I was spending more on records than I was earning so it made no sense. It's um, kind of interesting to hear you talk about that because it leads me on to my next question because it's definitely like a snobbery about people that play mm -hmm. vinyl versus mp3 or maybe like people idolising vinyl and it is really cool and it's such a skill to be able to mix that and it's not a skill many people have at anymore but I think there's a reason for that in the sense that it is really heavy and it's really expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, and it takes up a lot of room. You have to yeah. have space for it too, you know? Yeah. And um, what do you think about that snobbery of people maybe judging other people who choose to DJ on CDs or MP3s or off a laptop as opposed to truly learning how to DJ? I'm happy for anyone to challenge me on that because I, I've earned You've my stripes. It. You know, I've earned my stripes and I, I chose um, to make my life a little bit easier. 
and I chose to DJ as a living. Mm. So I needed to keep my costs down and be able to move around more and moving to CDs and, and MP3s gave me that freedom. And we're going to come back to a discussion maybe around like going full time with DJing and making a career, making a living out of it. But for now, we're going to cut to an interview that you had with Mr. Saturday Night. So Eamon Harkin mm-hmm. down at the Hennessy Sound Lounge at Body and Soul this weekend, where he discusses some similar themes around vinyl versus MP3. You know, this is something I've actually thought um, more about in the last two years than than maybe I did for a while because, um, you know, in the last few years, Justin, my partner, and I have opened a a club in New York, and we've spent a lot of time working with artists, New York-based artists, um, to be sort of part of the club and be residents and, like, be part of the sort of living, breathing uh, musical experience, and... A lot of these artists are, are, are much younger than us, and they're coming from the perspective of they're like living in New York, grafting hard and hustling to be yeah. a musician and DJ in a very expensive city. And to them, vinyl is just a complete luxury. That they, yeah, they, yeah, they it's just, a total indulgence. It's you know? a total yeah. indulgence, and they're just, they're just like, I just can't afford it, you know? Yeah. And so there is something, like I, I mean, I love vinyl, I've collected vinyl for for many, many years and kind of at the point now where I feel I can't go back. But um, there is something quite sort of um, punk rock about the CDJ and the USB stick. You know, you just rock up and you plug it in and away you go. And it, um, you could be playing a track that you just made 10 minutes before in your apartment and you didn't have to go through a record label or a pressing plant or any of the gatekeepers that just rack up expense and get in the way of the decision that this music can be can be heard and I think it'll always stay a a bone of contention with DJs or or producers in that the there's there's an idea that the authenticity is with the vinyl holder or the vinyl DJ yeah but um if you want to actually be a working DJ it's not always the case I mean I, I I started playing vinyl and then I was carrying bags of records around and on a, on a BMX and like try to do it that way and then up and downstairs and it got too much um, but I, I love it but I stopped buying it and now I can't afford to start buying again right. because I want too much of it I want all of it and I want to do you know it's a, it's a, it's a life's work essentially yeah yeah. and so uh, you know I I, um, I, I, I make sure that um, well, I, I make an effort myself not to be not to be a vinyl snob because yeah, yeah. I really I really do appreciate. And what, and it's what, not nice. It's, everyone just thinks you're no, playing the no, arse if you're a vinyl snob. Nobody, you know, nobody likes a snob. Um, I still love records. I still buy records and collect records, but I also play digital as well as as does Justin. And I really appreciate what you can do with the digital form, and really respect people. And that for choose. sharing, it's incredible. Like there's no other way to do it. Yeah. And that and that brings that sharing in again. You know that like you're actually able to share a track that you just played or made or heard to your pal. That's when you're not in the living room together playing records for each other. It's a way of you still sharing music with your friends who live around the world or who live in different cities. Yeah. You know, it keeps you close. Right. That's the way I keep in touch with a lot of my pals is just staring each other tunes. You yeah, know? totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So the DJ selector is becoming a more and more popular term. So this is people who can't necessarily mix but can read a room really well, have a really good collection and are getting booked to play really great tracks. What do you think about that side of the industry? It's amazing. Like, that's amazing. 
like some of my favorite DJs I would consider selectors, you know, not necessarily. Um, I, I was never massively impressed by uh, people who mixed perfectly and kept every, and, and, and built their BPMs from, you know, from 113 up to 125 and then that was the whole set. The temptation is when you're playing MP3s to, to I had to train myself, it's a different type of DJing, so when you're playing vinyl um, based on what you have, which is what, what I would have was a very big variety of different types of music, so it's not always easy to play, but you gotta sell the tune more when you bring it in. And those sets can be so much fun. But when I moved to MP3, the temptation was there to, you know, you can line up your tracks from just listing from BPM. So I, I was very tempted in that. And a lot of my sets that I would play, a lot of my sets that I've recorded would be more mixed than um, the kind of random selection, you know? So I think vinyl gives me that outlet to do that again. But like, I love I love sets that are, are about because the, you know the person is just, is reading the room completely. There's been, been to a lot of sets where people are DJing and they haven't looked up once or- Because they have this plan and they're just going yeah, for it Yeah, and they're just what. playing what they brought. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to people about this before and I, I feel like, I think if you're an empathetic person, you're more likely to read a room and I think, you want people to dance rather than to show them your sweet skills. Yeah. So I've always had that angle. But obviously I think some people take it a little bit more seriously and they want to, sh to show their craft. But I've tended to enjoy sets that were... That are being well received. Yeah, yeah. Do you so know? you're vibing off the audience yeah, as much exactly. as they're vibing off um, you. Yeah, exactly. And you've been working as a DJ for over 15 years now, right? Yeah. How have you made that career work? Um, when a lot of people haven't. Um, taking loads of shit gigs. <laughs> <laughs> so you could practice. I've not been too snobby about places that you play and try and play with as open a heart as possible. But I've, I, I mean, I've also learned to live quite frugally when I've had to. It trains you to um, have a bad relationship with money because <laughs> you, can you can be fairly flush and fairly broke and you can go between both waves. a lot. But I've learned to just live like that. I don't, I mean, I work in between sometimes. I take on extra jobs, whatever. I do other things. I make crafts. I make things and I I can do another, a few other little things. But I'd rather, I like the time that I have. And uh, if I have to um, live a little more um, within my means, I don't mind that really. Because I do feel uh, grateful that it's given me the time it gives me. Yeah, um, so the sacrifices to be made in certain absolutely. sections of your life, but for yeah. a really great payoff. Yeah, you know, you've got friends that are going to get married abroad, that has to be your holiday that year, or picking festivals to go to that you can double up on a gig, or you're not losing out a gig in Dublin when you're, if you're going away to, to work at a festival. I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't answer to anyone, essentially. Mm. Um, I feel grateful for that. Yeah, know? and I suppose then... DJs compares to bands, you have that thing where you can fall back on a corporate gig or you can fall back Absolutely, on, on yeah. stuff like that. And do you, you take advantage of that, obviously? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I've i learned over the years um, the signs to look out for when the, the gig is going to be very compromising uh, or creatively compromising. There's a number that you have. I think everyone has a number that there's a certain amount of stick that you'll take for a certain fee and mm. um, I'm very careful about 
making sure that why they're hiring me. Mm. Do they get my vibe? Do they get my buzz? And will I get their buzz? And I've gotten much better at saying, actually, I don't think I'm a good fit for that, but this person might be a really good fit for it. Okay, cool. Um, weddings are a tough one, um, but they're... Would you do many? Uh, I try not to, because it's it. Um, they're the one place that I can be brought back to that really small, insecure place, and you can't do anything about it because you're at a wedding and you have to project good vibes. But I'd be often contacted by people who've seen my sets of audience soul and say, we want to, our wedding's going to be so alternative. And I'm just like, oh, it's not. You know, like you're going to give me like, a list. And then you go there and they want the body and soul DJ, but they want... Rock the boat. They want rock the boat. And, and, um, and their friends uh, want, think you should be playing Miley Cyrus or whatever. And... It's, you can't tell people, you know, you can't defend yourself in those situations. You have to just scramble for the tune. I never play a tune I don't like. That's how I stop myself from feeling really compromised. I don't download music that I don't like. Because you're just not going to pull it off, standing there for you're three minutes, pull, yeah. getting through a song so that you don't find enjoy. A way around it. But you, weddings are really challenging because people are really abrasive and they just expect you to be a certain way. And you've stepped into that wedding DJ role, so you have to take a certain amount of guff. Um, so I try to just do it for people that I know mm. and um, and it works better for me that way. So is it a very fine line for you between taking the gigs that you absolutely love and then taking the gigs that you need to make money that month so you can enjoy taking the gigs that you absolutely love? Yeah, and I just don't take the ones that I feel like are going to be tricky yeah. because actually it, it, it can be quite damaging when you take on a gig that feels very uh, compromising it actually kind of has a lasting effect on me. Would you feel those confidence issues creep back Big in? Big time, then? and I, I'd, I'd be kind of annoyed at myself for a few weeks for letting myself be, um, let go go to that place. Yeah. And so there's there's no there's no money, there's no number on those gigs. Those ones kind of do a bit more damage than it's they can. It's just not worth it. And like it's not worth it, so you just have to make it, you have to ask for the amount that if you go to that point... You've enough. Money You've got a reminder of why you are there. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Afterwards, you know like I, mean? I wouldn't be at your level in terms of DJing, but I would definitely do a few gigs and some in clubs that I love and somewhere corporate stuff. And yeah. there is nothing worse than standing somewhere for three hours in an outfit that you probably don't want to be in because you're at an event for a brand that you feel like you've to dress a certain way and just yeah. wanting the ground to swallow you. Yeah, I never like. Luckily enough, that the gigs that I get asked to do, they've never really suggested dressing or looking a certain way. Um, so I kind of always thought that maybe my image was part of the the thing. Absolutely. Um, they never asked me to tone it down or anything like that. I think if they did, that would be... But, you know, I definitely do think about the branding and the colours. and the, You know what I mean? Like, it's definitely something that it's... Without them asking, you kind of do mm. think about consciously. Um, but, yeah, it can, be, it can be tough. And you just got to make sure you have enough of the good ones that keep your heart happy, mm. you know? And I asked you at the start about your perception of DJs when you were growing up. Do you think kids these days have a different perception of what a DJ is because we see a lot of clubs closing in the city? And I think that kids growing up may have an idea of seeing DJs more in ba in bars and at festivals than they are in these bigger clubs. Yeah, I feel I feel like the I feel sad that they don't know how good our club scene used to be in Dublin. Um, and probably won't know that again, at least not for another good while. It's really sad because it's something that's lost now. And there's so many people that just think that DJs are bar DJs and 
like obviously nothing wrong with being a bar DJ. Absolutely bar not. DJ. Um, but just that, like I remember going to, like the kitchen and powder bubble and things like that. That absolutely blew my mind, and I would never dream to have approached the DJ, asked them for anything, comment on what they're doing. Do you attend to just go into record shops and say, "I hear this tune," it goes like this. Do you know the tune it is? Because I didn't want to ask. There was a fun in that, that that sort of trying to find a track down that, that tune. It was a hobby for a lot of people. It was a hobby, it? but like this is just, you walk into bar Shazam and then you go over to the DJ and tell her you don't like the song and what's the next one. And you're just like, what? like, it's very hard. You take a lot of guff in bars mm. and you get a lot less money in bars, but it's cash. So you got to take a certain amount of those. And also it keeps your skills fresh, um, but you, you take a lot more stick in bars just because they're a younger generation who just think that that's how it works and that you can approach somebody and be as cruel or as um, gregarious mm. as you want. And then that they're there to um, absorb that. And uh, it's very hard to teach people um, how unmannerly they're being when they approach you full of drink. And so, tell you that, like, you know, there's no one dancing. Can you change the music, please? Are you going to play words? Are you going to play, play something we all know? You know? Yeah. And, like, obviously we're seeing clubs like Hangar, Close Down and District 8, which would have been massive for a younger generation. And, obviously, Pod is still lying dormant at the top of Harcourt mm. Street, which would have been massive when I was first going out. But that breaks my heart when I, when I go past there because they're some of my best memories. I saw some of the best gigs I've ever seen. Mm. In that complex between Crawdaddy and Tripod. Yeah. Um, and it was such a turning point. That time and that space was the kind of turning from clubs into bars, but they did it really well, you know. Mm. I'm devastated at how difficult it is for people to put on fun and interesting parties in alternative spaces yeah. in Ireland. It's impossible. You're up against so much licensing laws. That's it, it's the red tape as well. So Yeah, it's it's insane. I love the lads that Gimme the Night are doing. I fully support them in every way I can. Um So they're, they're basically trying to get our bars to open later. They're canvassing for a nightmare in the city. So we actually yeah. have someone who's in a position of authority to look after these things for us and that we don't have to close at two o'clock in the morning and that places can get one off licenses and stuff like that. They yeah. are doing great work, but it's a long yeah, road ahead. Yeah, but I ahead. also see a lot of bullying that goes on. Like I, say for instance, I play in Hang Dai. They get a lot of guff. The guards come in every night, make sure their music's off at two. Mm. Um, the guards are really tough on them there. Like, what coppers goes till four or five. That's not fair, you know? There's um, definitely a stigmatisation in this country around certain genres of music, isn't there? And that is still very much there, I feel. No, I think it's, I think that's just about, um, nepotism and money and greed I don't think I think it's unfair uh, I think the rules should be the same across the board and there's too many amazing buildings around Dublin lying dormant that could be used for artist studios and for alternative spaces I just I don't think clubs culture is recognised as a culture that needs to be preserved yeah, not I like agree. it is in Berlin where like those buildings some of the bigger clubs in Berlin are listed as cultural um, Centres, yeah. yeah. I mean, you see club kids walking around Berlin at all hours of the day, going from club to club, not being rowdy, not making any noise, you know, not being disruptive. And I think we've gotten to a stage where you're like, you know, you've got till half two and people are getting ploughed full of drink. And then they're out on the street at half two, three. Everyone's trying to get a kebab or a cab at the same time. And that that time is gone then. The night is over and 
it's just filled with, it's just packed with the chaos and no music. I think Deneen does a really great thing with his, um, he's got a night called Backstory and it's down in Jigsaw and he limits the ticket numbers and everyone just brings their own drink and he goes to two or three, I think. And uh, it's this really small, weird, not particularly nice space that just fills with people who are just there to dance. But the way people interact with each other when uh, it's not a bar, the way people behave, it's so different. And that's the only experience I've had for a while that I feel like people approach each other to just chat mm. and to interact. There should be like 50 of those nights going in Dublin. And it should be that easy to do for people who really, really want to do it. Mm. You had quite a similar conversation down on the Hennessy Soundline stage with Eamon, uh, Mr. Saturday Night, about a time when he went from London to New York and expected this incredible dance scene that wasn't really there and he was forced to kind of form it himself between his friends. So we're going to cut to a bit of audio from that now and hear that chat. Prior to 9-11 and, and beyond, really, Giuliani, who was the, the mayor in New York, um, had gone on a very aggressive campaign of cleaning up New York because of some of the crime problems that existed. And he chose club culture as, as one of his targets because he sort of associated the clubs with, um, you know, dens of iniquity yeah. and, and, and places of, of vice and drugs and so on, which isn't completely false, right? No, you know? but he was heralded for, for being somebody who was going to clean up the town and he was adored for it, but actually... Yeah. It was quite tough and really, it's quite ignorant when you think of it now, what he should have been targeting. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the way it went about it was, was pretty terrible, and that's been sort of well documented. But the net result is, I, you know, I showed up um, because I worked in sort of web design, and, and so that's why I went, because I got a visa, and um, decided to throw a lot of energy into dance music because it had been a, sort of a, a building interest and passion when I was in London. I was like, well, okay, so somebody's basically pay me to go to New York and New York's the the home of dance music. It's the natural progression from London at that yeah, stage to I'm, hear more bigger, louder places, you know? Yeah, so I'm just going to go and throw myself into it. But when I got there, I realized there wasn't an awful lot left to throw myself into, yeah. which was took me a while to sort of sort of grapple with that and sort of figure out what was going on. And then, um, and then I met Justin and... We sort of bonded over sort of minor despair of what was going on. And we were like, okay, well, you know, we've both got similar interests in music and we're both really, we've got similar ideas of what a good party is, a, is should be like. So let's, let's get on and do it. Was at that stage you were trying to um, pick really unusual spaces or spaces that allowed you the freedom to throw the kind of parties that you wanted to throw? Yeah, because for, for two reasons, one, we were both working with two of the like handful of clubs that were still standing and we're both really frustrated with the experience of trying to like work with a club owner and and collaborate around the experience and have a conversation about like you know your security is way too aggressive and it's turning people away and him not being really receptive to that feedback or you know, you can't charge $12 for a beer. You know, yeah. people aren't going to come. You know, they're just, you know, so you couldn't, re you were kind of frozen out of decisions that were really important to the, the, the bigger experience of the party. So we both had, you know, a litany of, of experiences like that at different places. And 
we were like, right, so we want to do this ourselves and take full control of all the elements of the experience. Coming off the back of that, I think there's an argument that people are always going to want to dance and you can close as many clubs as you want and build as many hotels as you want. People are going to find somewhere to go. Do you think where Dublin and Ireland is at at the moment is going to push the culture, dance culture, back underground and are we going to see more raves and stuff popping up? Like yeah, I'd love to think so. Um, I think it's probably why festivals are so huge but there's so many festivals here it's the closest thing you're going to get to any sort of um debacus or uh free just any sort of free freedom um to I dance. completely agree with you like we're yeah. seeing so many festivals at the moment and you could talk to young kids like I used to go out to the Twist of Pepper, Button Factory Pods three or four nights a week whereas now you got kids that don't go out for two months because they're saving all their money to go to yeah. four festivals this summer because that's the only place they can hear this type of music maybe. And festivals have their place for sure but I, I just think how difficult things have gone in Ireland Oh, fire marshals and health and safety and insurance and mostly it's just greed. There's just people who own huge spaces that don't care about culture. They don't care about lo loaning that space to something that could be really creative because I don't think it's just seen as a sort of a, something seedy and messy and I feel really sad about that. I would love to think that maybe the lads would give us the night, might, and, and just with the, that natural progression of wanting to keep the crack going and keep clubbing going will be pushed back underground but I, I've, I I can see the difference between now and then and I could imagine it's going to be very very hard for anyone really? to still do that because that's one thing I was going to ask like I'm wondering is it cyclical where it starts off again where the music is pushed back underground and then a couple of years later people start to get back into legitimate like big club spaces while the likes of Index and Jigsaw are brilliant we don't have the size of Hangar or the Button Factory or District 8, these kind of warehousey size places anymore. And I was wondering, are we about to get into a cycle of it goes underground and then people get legitimate clubs and then it becomes a legitimate part of culture like it did maybe 15 like, years ago? Can you see like that Like it did with Eamon. Again? Yeah, like Eamon was lucky in that sense. Um, and I think there might have been a little bit of naivety at the time, but they were just like, fuck it, let's go for it. And they, it paid off really well for them. But like he said, it wasn't without its problems. They had to go up in front of a judge a few times. He had no green card. You know, he had a green card. He couldn't be messing around. Um, I think it must have been... I mean, it's it's hard to comment on that time in New York because I wasn't, I wasn't around for that. But I think they got lucky, but it wasn't without its uh, consequences. And mm -hmm. I think it was really hard work for them. I don't think you would have the same access to, to doing things like that in Ireland. There was all... I've heard of epic raves. I remember being to a few of them in car parks out in Redcliffe, um, a Red Rock in Hoth, but like just shut down as soon as it became in any way, uh, any format or regularity came, it was just, it was cut, it was cut out, it was shut down. Mm. Um, just to wrap up, I think we're at quite an interesting moment in Irish music at the minute. Would you agree it's definitely a turning point? And if so, what excites you about the culture and the industry right now? And where do you see things going in the next couple of years as someone who's DJing and who is making a living from this industry? Um, I got a great kick out of the Sim Sim lads. Um, their gig on the Hennessy Sound Lounge stage was. I'm hearing great things from everyone. They're amazing, and I actually chatted to the lads about it. I was saying like, there's such a lovely feeling to hear rave tunes that I was mental about when I was, you know, in my um, late teens and early twenties, but being played again, and I would have necessarily have felt that I could. 
like I, I've progressed from there, but they were the tunes that paved, that, that shaped me and hearing them again in a club from a new younger scene, but not feeling like an L one being around them, like feeling like their peers, even though there might be 15 years between us. Um, and, and definitely, so I progressed and I'm trying to find newer um, uh, kind of world music and, you know, that's where you move into. Um, and so that's been a really exciting thing, hearing stuff again that's come around second time round. And I think with the diversity in cultures that we have now in Ireland can only bring us positive stuff, new stuff. Um, that makes me really excited. And I think the difference in the crowds now, it's so lovely to see all of that freedom that we wouldn't have always necessarily seen and different colour faces and, you know, boys and girls, girls and boys all dancing together. There's, I never thought that we'd get to that point. That's something I still appreciate all of the time. That still kind of fills my heart because I just think we're lucky to have gotten to this point. I know we've got a lot of problems still, but that crack is still going and keeping everyone going, you know? Yeah, and who knows where we'll be in another 15 exactly, years time. Exactly, exactly, you know? Like, I think Ireland's achieved amazing stuff, especially with the marriage referendum and then repeal the eighth. I don't think we really trusted that we had it in us. And there was just nothing but love to come from both of those two massive movements. There was so much work put into it and it paid off. And I think I can feel that from people. And you see it. That's where you see it. You see it in clubs. You see it on dance floors. Well, I think that's a really lovely, positive note to end it on. So DJ Sally Cinnamon, thank you so much for You're talking You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. This is a new era brought to you by Hennessy.